Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Jim Cavallaro, the executive director of the University Network for Human Rights. Jim has taught human rights law and practice for nearly a quarter century, most recently at Wesleyan University, Stanford Law School, and Harvard Law School. I'm speaking to Jim about his work for the University Network for Human Rights. Hi, Jim. Welcome to New Books Network. Thanks so much for joining us. Good day. Good morning. It's, it's great to be here. So I was wondering if you could first just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. So I was uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, went to college in the, in the Northeast and, and to law school afterwards. Uh, my, my background in human rights, which is the area that I've been working in for the past almost four decades now, uh, really began in the 1980s uh, after I graduated from college. I started to work in a shelter for Central American refugees on the U.S.-Mexico border in in El Paso, uh, Texas, right across, literally just, you could practically see Juarez, the other side of the border. And it was a period in the 80s when the United States was receiving a lot of refugees from the conflicts, the civil conflicts in in Central America, the Northern Triangle, in Honduras, in El Salvador, Nicaragua. And I spent a, a fair amount of time most of what was an academic year, living and working with Central American refugees. And uh, through that, in addition to helping them with their asylum cases and uh, relocating in the United States, finding their families, et cetera, I became much more interested in, in the role of the United States in those conflicts, often in propping up ruthless authoritarian regimes, uh, often in undermining uh, human rights and uh, liberties for, for uh, different populations in, in the Americas to promote uh, what was then an, an anti-communist agenda. And that led me into human rights, and that led me, led me into understanding the causes of civil conflict, uh, the causes of, of these kinds of disruptions and, and human mobility, what was behind that. And I, I started to, you know, to work in that area. I, 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 after being at... Uh, what was called Annunciation House still exists on the U.S.-Mexico border and still doing great work with the current wave of 
refugees from gang and police and other forms of violence in the Northern Triangle. Uh, I, I went to law school at, the, at Berkeley and continued to work in human rights. And then from there, I got involved in a project uh, to work in, in, in Chile uh, with a human rights organization that was opposing the Pinochet dictatorship and, and defending political prisoners. I did that for a while. Then I, when I graduated from law school, I started working for Human Rights Watch and uh, I started working in Brazil. I later set up an office in Brazil of Human Rights Watch. And after a, a while there with a group of Brazilian colleagues, we set up a human rights organization called uh, Justiça Global, still exists as a, as a human rights organization that works with communities, grassroots communities uh, in Brazil and tries to project their voice and uh, their demands uh, at an international uh, level. And uh, after that, I started working with human, uh, we, I worked with, uh, I'm sorry, with Human Rights Watch and then the Center for, for Global Justice, uh, Justiça Global. And then I came to Harvard about 20 years ago, and I was hired at Harvard in part to set up a practical program for Harvard students to engage in human rights. I, I did I did that for about a decade, and, and over that time expanded what was called, still is called, the Human Rights Clinic at Harvard Law School. And in that, what we, what we did was, you know, I taught law and human rights standards, but mostly I taught and supervised law students engaged in the practice of human rights. And from there, I was recruited to join the faculty at Stanford and set up a human rights clinic there. I did that, again, for almost another decade. And, and in the last, and this is what I'm doing now, this is what I'm, I'm really happy to be able to talk to you about. And in the last five years that I was at Stanford, I, in addition to teaching law students, I was also teaching undergraduates and trying to engage undergraduates and also students from other non-law disciplines in the supervised practice of human rights with communities. So community-based human rights advocacy, training students outside of law to do that. And what I really liked about that is that what I found about the law, and I'm someone who was trained in law, I mean, I have a PhD also, but I'm trained in law, is that law can sharpen your thinking but can also really narrow your thinking so that lawyers tend to look for solutions within law, understanding law, but only within law. And in the field of human rights, the solutions generally are much more diverse. They involve different understandings. They involve different ways of mobilizing people, changing public opinion, working with authorities, uh, adopting different policies, and not only looking for the court where a suit might be brought to change things. And so by working with undergraduates, which I did for the last five years, I realized that that was what I, what I really wanted to do. And that, that's what led me to leave Stanford uh, and to set up an organization called the University Network for Human Rights, which is now based on the, on the uh, campus of Wesleyan University back east, which is fine because I'm originally from back east. And what it does is, is it works with students mostly undergraduates with students in other disciplines. And we work with students in other parts of the world as well, in, other, in universities in Latin America and in Europe, to try to create spaces in universities where students who are not lawyers, who have other focus areas in their studies, where they can work with communities to promote human rights advocacy from a, a, an interdisciplinary perspective, not only using the tools that, that law gives you. So that's, that's what I'm doing now. It's a long, long intro. I appreciate your, your patience. Uh, that's sort of how I got from 
there to here. I mean, yeah, that's a fascinating background. And, you know, clearly you spent a lot of time engaging in the field of human rights. Uh, so, you know, you, you gave us a little bit about some of the, the mission of the organization regarding working with undergraduates. Can you talk about some, some specific things that you've done with undergraduates uh, in order to further uh, this mission? Uh, sure. So, uh, again, part of this is the key idea, and one other thing that I'd, I'd love to, to flag to frame this is, in, in addition to working with students from different disciplines and bringing different perspectives and approaches to bear, which I think is good for human rights and good for the movement, uh, there's another recognition that, that you know, several decades in human rights uh, brought to me, and, and that is over the past four decades, and I started human rights in the 1980s there has been a quote unquote professionalization of the human rights movement so that, you know, you can get a master's degree in the study of human rights. You can get a, I have a PhD in human rights. You can do that now. It is an area where there is a study, there's a discipline, there's a doctrine. Uh, but most of that is in law and is in legal doctrine. And part of the quote unquote professionalization of the human rights movement has been a distancing of the human rights movement from grassroots organizations that are working directly, directly with communities. And so part of working with undergraduates, and I'll get to your question, part of working with undergraduates is about working with people who do not see communities as clients uh, whom they are going to represent in different legal fora, but seeing them as partners in a much more broad spread, community-based approach to seeking ju social justice with a human rights frame. And so what kinds of things did we do with, did we do with, uh, with undergrads? I'll give you an example. When I was still at Stanford, and as I was transitioning to the University Network for Human Rights, we were working with a community in an area called Cancer Alley, which is uh, the, the swath of Louisiana between uh, New Orleans and Baton Rouge. And it's, it's called Cancer Alley, which is, which is your first clue that something is profoundly wrong because there's a very high concentration of petrochemical and other industry that produces toxic emissions and, and there's, a, there's a high level of cancer in that swath of, of Louisiana. We were working with a community uh, which was adjacent to a neoprene plant. Neoprene is the rubbery stuff that you use to make wetsuits and, and, and some industrial products as well. But that's how it's known. And the folks in this community, overwhelmingly African-American, something on the order of 90 plus percent, depending how you, you measure the area, uh, were very concerned because their clear sense was that they were exposed to chloroprene emissions and other emissions from the, the DuPont Denka neoprene plant. They saw that their uh, neighbors and their family members were, were becoming ill with uh, respiratory illness, with high levels of cancer. They didn't quite know what was happening in precise data terms because the, the state authorities did not disaggregate the information about illness on a block by block basis. So they just knew the people in this county had slightly higher cancer levels, but the whole area has higher cancer levels. So they couldn't really, they didn't really know what was going on. And we went out there, with this, you know, they invited us, they wanted us to come and help them. I was at the Stanford Human Rights Clinic from the law school. We went out. And when we got there, we were talking to people, thinking that they would want us to represent them, bring some sort of domestic or international legal action. And pretty much to a person like, no, no, we, 
We don't want you to bring in legal actions. With that, with the legal, we've had legal actions, and people will sue the company, and they'll get a, a group of uh, plaintiffs. The company will uh, f- uh, settle uh, $100,000, make the lawyers happy, give them some money. Everyone lines up, gets a check for $100 on whatever day they're, they're distributing the checks, and that's it. And the air continues to be uh, polluted, and kids continue to come home from school with their noses bleeding with their and with their inhalers, and 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 our aunts and uncles and are, are, are ill with cancer and are dying and, and are in the local hospitals. No, no, no. We want to know what's going on here. We want someone to tell us the truth because we know that something's going on, but they won't give us the numbers. And so what they wanted us, us to do was to do what's called a household survey. They, they didn't know exactly what the terms were. They, they want to know what's going on. Talk to everyone, document it. And so we went back to Stanford. And, and, and by the way, uniformly people told us this is what they wanted. We want to know what's going on. We want to figure this out so that we can press the authorities and change it. Went back to Stanford and we worked with uh, folks in public health, in medicine, in study design, in household survey design, in randomization. And, you know, Stanford has all those folks, like any major university. And then we decided to go back to apply the survey. Now, here's the catch. I have a group of students in the human rights corner. They're law students. I'm like, okay, this is what we're going to do here because this is what the community wants. None of my, under, my none of my law students rather wanted to do the household survey. Like we don't do household surveys. We're lawyers. We're going to be lawyers. That's how okay. But that's what the community wanted. So we got a group of undergraduates, and the undergraduates were happy to do this. Instead of their spring break, they they went to Louisiana. They're working twelve hour days, applying this household uh, survey that we had designed with experts at Stanford, and. We, we, we did it in an area within about one to three kilometers from, or half a kilometer, you know, adjacent to, out to, you know, two, three kilometers away from the plant. And what we found was a direct correlation between proximity to the plant and levels of cancer and other illness. At a, at a level of statistical significance that is not, 0.05 is good. It was 0.002, which is pretty close to, Causation, even though you you, you, know, you know correlation is not causation, but very 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 closely correlated. And with that information, we could design campaigns uh, to, to to press the EPA. Eventually, the EPA administrator recently went to the to the area. Uh, the EPA has called for uh, emissions to be reduced. We developed a campaign where we brought some of the community members with us to Japan to talk to folks at the headquarters of the Japanese company to sort of put them on spot and say, why are you poisoning this overwhelmingly African-American community with your emissions uh, in, in, in Reserve Louisiana? And so just to say that that's one thing that, that uh, undergraduates have done. But just to give you another example, because we have undergraduates do the range of things we do. A lot of it is domestic. We're working on a big pro- uh, project. This is the second round of it in Connecticut, which is where we are, to try and reduce mass incarceration. We had a team of students at, 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 at uh, Wesleyan looking at the rates of incarceration during COVID to assess and understand the downward trend and to see if that's something that that Connecticut could benefit from and move away from mass incarceration, taking advantage of uh, a decrease in incarceration that occurred when when, uh, COVID first struck in in 2020. We have students, uh, a couple of students at the end of the year in January uh, in Bolivia working on a, a, a documentary about uh, abuses to incidents of 
summary executions uh, during the interim regime of uh, Añez, President Añez, who took power in a, uh, let's just say, uh, in, in, a, in, in a process that did not respect the Constitution of Bolivia, uh, generally referred to as a coup d'etat, uh, but certainly we can say uh, uh, an illegal and irregular transition. And we're looking at two particular massacres, and we had students who were with a, a supervisor who's worked in Bolivia for 15 years, interviewing and documenting to cr uh, create a documentary narrative of those incidents of rights abuse. We've had a couple of students just got back at the end of March uh, from travel to Armenia with one of our supervisors is born and raised in Armenia, speaks Armenian and Russian and understands the area and is working on documenting abuses in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and that conflict with Azerbaijan uh, to try and create documents to send to different UN authorities to ensure investigation and accountability for the abuses that have occurred and to, and to make sure that the peacekeeping operation actually keeps the peace. So those are just some of the things that, that, that students are doing. And, and again, what we found is with the right training that undergraduates can do the same kind of work that law students can do. If, you know, again, they're a bit younger, they need a, a closer supervision, but they can do the work. Yeah, certainly, you know, undergraduate is one of the, you know, one of the key times when people, I think, are learning or trying to un figure out what they want to do with themselves. And these types of experiences, even if, you know, they end up going on to do something else or are, are obviously can be transformative personal experiences um, and definitely key. So, you know, I was wondering in your in your role as the lead of University Network for Human Rights, what is your favorite aspect of the job? And what is for you the greatest challenge? So great question. By the way, you know, I think it'd be really interesting for you to talk to some of the students uh, who've, who've participated in, in, in these trips. And, you know, a couple of them, you know, have, have passed on to, to us, to, to their supervisors, that, that the experience was, was transformative for them. That they saw that all of the education and, and capacities and, and privileges that they have as students at a prestigious university could actually make a difference in people's lives in a way that was palpable and tangible. And, and, and now that's what they want to do as opposed to, you know, uh, selling commodities in Manhattan. Uh, you know, they, they, they want to deploy their skills to, to advance the interests of communities whose voices are, are, are being stifled and which is great. And so, you know, my, again, since, you know, I, I did a lot of work for Human Rights Watch and for uh, just civil law, where I was, you know, full-time human rights activist. And occasionally we'd have student interns, but honestly, I was just working, you know, too long, too many hours a day to give those students the attention that they deserve. They'd come in our office for a couple months in the summer and we put them to work, which I think is what happens with most internships, to be honest. Uh, so, I, I, you know, and I had... I, had a lot of experiences where I felt like oh, we were actually making a difference. A lot of experiences where you feel like you're banging your head against the wall, but some we think, oh my Lord, we've actually, we've, we've, we've helped this community to, to advance this change, which is really remarkably gratifying to see people who are suffering, who are, who are, who have suffered rights abuse or who's who've lost family members to, to begin to see that justice is a possibility and to move in that direction. So that, that, that's certainly was gratifying. And that was really, probably the first couple of decades of my uh, work in human rights. And then the last, uh, you know, really two decades or so, 
since I've been fundamentally based in universities and training students, that, that the most gratifying part is to see students who start, you know, at 20 years old or whatever they are, who have a very thin understanding of human rights, who have a visceral belief in social justice, but, but really not much more in terms of uh, sophisticated capacity to engage, to see them develop their skills and uh, to, to understand the corpus of human rights, to understand the practice, to learn skills like interviewing and active listening and documenting abuses, and then to, to go out and become activists. And, and they're, my, they're my colleagues now. They're, they're people I'll call up to say, hey, what's happening here? What's happening? I don't, can you explain the situation to me? And to see and to invite those folks back and have them speak to students and for students to see, I can be this person here. I can do this. I can have this level of impact. So that's what I'm, you know, by far most uh, most proud of in, in this phase of my career working with, with university students is having some, and obviously it's the students that, you know, they're talented, they're great. I, I'm guiding them uh, initially. And then they're off on their own and, and they're doing great work, right? So I'm not going to take credit for what they're doing, just so we're clear. But I feel like I've had something to do with their development. That's uh, just, you know, just remarkably gratifying, especially if you think, you know, what, what can I do in the world? I can do as much as I can do. What can an other, a number of people who I've worked with go out and do in the world? And that sort of gives me hope. Uh, to be honest, I have more hope in your generation than I do in mine. You know, we've set the planet on fire, <laughs> brought us to the brink of nuclear disaster uh, expanded inequality to record levels, et cetera. I'm hoping your generation can can rewrite the ship. And the second part of your question is, what are the challenges? Is, you know, it can, it can be tough, uh, the work. is You know, we I've done a lot of research and documentation in prisons. And, you know, we, I take students and, you know, one or two students at a time into maximum security prisons in different parts of the world. And uh, it can be, it can be, difficult for students. Uh, so I, 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 as much as I think this is important work and as much as I, I, you know, I have a belief system where I think, you know, if you've to those who much is given, much is, much is demanded, much is required. I believe that. Uh, I think we're all interconnected. I think all of us have those, whether we want to own this or not, we have, uh, let's say debts or obligations to others in, in a society, particularly if we're relatively fortunate. Uh, so I do believe that there's that the people should be engaged in some way, but it's not for everyone. And that's one of the things you, you see with some with students and you take students places where they start to engage and you realize that this is, they're not, they, this is not the, the, the work for them. And that's fine, but it's, it's difficult and it's tough to see people having a hard time with it. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. If there's a student listening to this who is interested in human rights, uh, but they don't know where to begin, which I think is the case for a lot of people when it comes to, you know, any sort of social justice, especially social justice on a, on a global level, it's extremely difficult to know where to begin. What advice would you give them as far as, you know, getting connected with uh, the University Network for Human Rights, and then also just more broader scale, someone who is interested in doing this, you know, this type of work for a career, you know, what what advice would you give to a in an early stage academic or a student who wants to go and make an impact? Should they go to law school? Should they continue their studies? Should they get on the ground uh, experience? Yeah, great question. Uh, first, I would say. You know, if you're interested in this, feel free to ping me or to, you know, I'm on the University Network webpage, humanrightsnetwork.org. Uh, you know, you can find me. We have our, our contact information. You know, we encourage people to reach out to us. Uh, you know, I'm cavalier at humanrightsnetwork.org. I'll, I'll, I'll try my best to respond to your email. I generally get to most emails within a day or so. Uh, so, you know, please reach out and we can, you know, we can uh, see if we might be able to help you. So that's the first and easiest uh, response. But what I would say is for, for people who are interested in, in, in working in human rights, I would say there's a collective misapprehension about the relative importance of the, let's call them the two key elements of community-based social justice work for human rights. Part of it is about working with communities and advancing their interests in the field of social justice. And part of it is about understanding what human rights are, what the standards are, uh, what the, the, the norms and the oversight bodies are, et cetera. I think we emphasize far too much the second part, which is the more legalistic part. So people tell you, oh, you, you need to go to law school and you need to study the doctrine and you need to be a lawyer. And while all of that is helpful, uh, the, the more important and essential component is working with communities, listening to what they have to say, trying to uh, recognize your role as a subordinate role and trying to amplify the voices of people who are directly affected. And that requires a lot of skills that you generally don't learn at law school. And they're about you know, things like active listening and working with communities and working with organizations and uh, uh, figuring out how you can be useful to them without stifling their voices, without uh, uh, seizing agency. Like those practices are, are basically community organization practices. Those are things that we need more people in the field of human rights to be good at. The second part, yeah, as things stand in the United States now, the probably the best place to get the 
technical education in human rights standards is, is law school. But that's exactly what we're trying to change. At Wesleyan now, and uh, you know, I you know, I have to give a shout out to the folks at Wesleyan, the, you know, the, the, from the president down, who've actually embraced what we're trying to do, and have created a space for it. But at Wesleyan, we've created a minor which is pretty robust, which trains students in human rights standards, in human rights advocacy. It develops the skills they need to be human rights advocates. It works with them. We have a week-long simulation exercise where they interview 50 people, witness, uh, witnesses and actors that we hire to play different roles. So we've developed at Wesleyan a program that is actually more robust than the program that I ran at Harvard Law School and the program I ran at Stanford Law School. So, And, and we're doing this with other universities as well, although Wesleyan is the lead. What we're trying to do is create those spaces so that students don't have to go to law school, indebt themselves close to $300,000, study a whole series of legal topics that they might not really care about so that they can work in human rights. Right? That, that's, what we, that's what we're trying to do is, is to create a structure in, in, at Wesleyan, which I think we're, we're doing or we've done. At the, start, the, the more intense we have pilot program, but the more intense program, the minor is starting now and in the fall we'll have our first full cohort of minor students and the following year we'll have students from the northeast come to wesleyan to do this program but the idea is that students don't have to go to unless you want to go to law school look i'm someone i i actually like law and legal analysis i'm a law professor i, I teach at yale law school i taught at harvard and stanford i happen i happen to like law and legal analysis and thinking in those terms. I, you know, I watched a TV show that you, you, you probably don't know what it is. It was called Perry Mason when I was a kid. It was an old, old TV show where the lawyer, totally ridiculous. I look at it now and I laugh at how bad the TV shows were then, but that's not our point. Our point is that, you know, law and order or whatever, whatever TV show that like you see justice and as a little kid without really understanding a lot, that's what you want to do. That's so that's me. But when I went to law school, most of the people that I went to law school with did not really want to be in law school. They didn't know what the heck they were going to do. They got out of college. They worked for a year or two. Uh, they did pretty well on the LSATs and they got into a good law school. So they decided to go to, to, to be a lawyer. That's who the law profession turns out. So I am, re when students come to talk to me and say, I want to go, go to law school. I always say, why do you want to go to law school? Most of them don't have a really good answer. It just seems like a thing to do. So I, generally counsel students to think good and hard about why they might want to go to law school. And if they want to go to law school because they want to work in social justice, right? They, they think they want to work in human rights. And I work through, what do you want to do? You want to work with communities? Well, here's how you can do that. You want to, you want to do uh, media work uh, uh, to advocate for those communities? Well, you can get, you study communications. You can, you, you do that at Wesleyan, one of the best places in the, in the country to do that. Right? So, uh, I'm very wary of, of counseling students to go to law school. And even students who say they want to go to law school, I, I, I to ask them why and have them work it through and to make sure that that's really the right answer for them. But in terms of human rights, what we're trying to do, and I think we're getting, we're getting there, is to create uh, alternatives. We're also, by the way, creating a, a master's degree program in Europe, a one-year intensive program in human rights advocacy. 
That's something also that we hope that some students from Wesleyan or, or elsewhere, other you know, schools, might decide, oh, let me go do that for a year with an intensive clinical program. Uh, and it's going through the administrative process at the University of Bologna. I think the uh, oldest uh, on the, one of the oldest universities on the continent for sure. And, uh, but just to say that we would like to, in two, three, five years, have established a series of programs that make it clear that if you want to do community-based social justice work in the frame of human rights, you can do this program. You, sh you don't need to go to law school. We're getting there. Yeah, so clearly, you know, clearly the future is looking bright. You have a lot of a lot of things you're working on in a lot of different places. Uh, you know, I was wondering, are there is there anything else that you haven't mentioned that your organization is working on? And then also, you know, just just for you, like, are you working on anything? Um, are you writing any books, any articles, anything like that? Uh, so, two things. Uh, one, we have a a, a but it's, a, it's an agreement with 30 universities in Latin America where we're working with them to establish interdisciplinary clinics in human rights and then exchange programs. And one of the universities we're working with is in Mexico City. I, I just got back. I was there last week working with them to develop these programs. A big part of what we're trying to do is to create a, or strengthen the network between universities and centers and that are working on, on, on rights defense in the States and uh, similar institutions, university-based human rights clinics and centers in the global South. Uh, and, you know, we're working in Latin America in part because I've done a lot of work in, uh, in Latin America. And so that's a, a big part of what we're doing. And then we're working on ways of uh, having exchanges. So we'll have, we'll have some students who will spend time uh, over the summer with some of our university partners in the global South. And then we're trying to uh, establish programs over the summer and other moments for, for those students to come uh, to Wesley and to study with some folks in the Northeast, invite professors uh, that we work with, you know, for, uh, from, from Yale, from, from Wesley and from other uh, campuses in the area. So that's uh, one part of what we're trying to do. And then we, we, we're also working with others in Europe and, uh, I have a colleague in Angola who is keen on having us uh, engage with them in developing an interdisciplinary clinic and, and partnership. So part of the idea of the network is to bring together uh, these focal points at universities in ways that, that leverage and amplify the, 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 the voices of communities that are directly affected and, and leverage student interest, amplify uh, the voices of, of communities that are, that are directly affected. And then something I'm working on, as soon as things slow down, which I think is will happen once the semester is over and I'm done reading papers and teaching and you know, and all those things that, uh, that that profs do in May, in April and May. But over the summer, I'm hoping to, to advance uh, with, a, with a book about where the human rights movement needs to go. And, and they're just sketching out the, the main ideas is I, I think that on the whole, we have been too reactive and too focused on process and also uh, too focused on distilling human rights standards from analysis of law as opposed to developing human rights standards based on the needs and interests of communities. 
And just to give you one example, for, for many years in the United States, but in many other parts of the world, I spent a lot of time documenting this in, in Brazil. But for many years in the United States, folks in communities of color were quite aware of frequent incidents of police brutality, uh, shootings of unarmed uh, young African-American men in the United States. Uh, but before the era of cell phones, these were not recorded and posted like the latest, just gruesome summary execution at, at point blank range. I'm not sure if you've managed to stomach your way through that ugly video uh, from Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, uh, just just yesterday, that, or at least it was released. But we didn't have the video evidence, okay? And for years, leading human rights organizations would call for greater and more specific and better financed accountability mechanisms, civilian review boards. We need to strengthen civilian review boards, which is all well and good and is certainly a legitimate demand. Civilian review boards should be strengthened if, if, if we have a police force with weapons with the unfortunate disposition to use lethal force and with the virtual guarantee of impunity if they use lethal force in a way that is illegal and that actually under law constitutes murder or, or manslaughter or some other criminal uh, use of deadly, deadly force. Okay, the George Floyd incident after years of Black Lives Matter mobilization after Ferguson, but the George Floyd incident, May 25th, really changes the national mood, mass protests, tens of thousands of people across the country for weeks on end. And what's the demand of Black Lives Matter as a movement? It's defund the police. It's reduce the imprint, the footprint of highly militarized police forces in urban areas primarily, but across the United States. We don't need policing. Someone has a psychiatric incident, send a negotiation team like there actually is happening now and is quite successful. I think in Minnesota, but it, it could be wrong. That's uh, not Minnesota, but anyhow, but, but who should be sent? Not six or eight heavily armed former SWAT or SWAT members, former military, but that's what we do for pretty much any kind of incident. And so the whole idea just of defund the police is a radically different approach. It's an approach that within a matter of, of months, if not weeks, the major human rights organizations get on board. They get on board with defund the police and they support defund the police. But for 20 plus years, or maybe more than 20 plus years, beginning in the 90s, Human Rights Watch, for instance, and other leading organizations, they're documenting police violence. They're actually getting the information on what's happening in the United States. And they're not calling for defund the police because they're looking at human rights standards as lawyers do to see what are the standards that have been accepted collectively and let's distill those standards and apply those. As opposed to what are the standards that make sense from the perspective of the community? And if you, if you start from the community and work towards the norms, you get to defund the police. 
if you start from the norms and think like a lawyer, you get to have three members of the civilian review board and not two. Okay. And that is, is, is an example of a broader conceptual problem that we have in the field of human rights, where because we tend to be lawyers and we think like lawyers, we're trying to distill norms from international consensus about law, as opposed to distilling norms from what do communities and people want. So another example is in, in the field of, of human rights, Sam Moyne writes about this at Yale uh, in, in Not Enough. Uh, we look at economic rights and we think of economic rights in terms of a floor. Everyone should have some minimum amount. And, and we haven't gotten there, but that's what we demand. We don't demand. Uh, it's not acceptable for Elon Musk to control $200 billion or for Jeff Bezos to control a similar amount of money and to play games flying themselves into space or purchasing major online communications uh, uh, portals like Twitter, right? We, we don't have that frame of, of a ceiling and we could develop that in the field of human rights. But to do that, we would have to, I think we would have to start from what communities want and need to live in a more justice egalitarian society in which there aren't a handful of people that actually control our politics. We would have to start from there and not start from, well, what, you know, what looks, if we look around the planet and see what states have done, well, actually states don't limit uh, massive wealth accrual. They think that's okay. So we can't say that that's a problem. But anyhow, that's, that's the, the, uh, the, the book that uh, I hope to be able to advance significantly on over the summer when, when, when things slow down. And thanks for asking. Yeah, Jim, uh, Jim, it sounds like you're working on so much. I hope you, you get time to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for joining us on New Books Network. Um, if, uh, if you want to, you know, just plug one more time in case anyone wants to get in touch with you. Um, what is your con- best, best way to contact you? So the easiest way to, to track us down, my name is Jim Cavallaro, C-A-V-A-L-L-A-R-O. My email is cavallaro at humanrightsnetwork.org. But if you, if you Google University Network for Human Rights or just humanrightsnetwork.org, you'll see our webpage and our webpage will go through what we do, how we work with universities, you know, contact us. There's information about each of us that work in the organization uh, with our emails. And uh, again, I will, I will try to uh, uh, respond, uh, even to hate mail. So don't hate. <laughs> Please don't hate. Hate's not good. Uh, but I will respond if you have a uh, Please don't send a hate question. mail to Jim. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or anyone else for that yeah, matter. Or anyone. <laughs> and, yeah. And don't hate people. You know, try yeah. to work with people where they are and, and understand where they're coming from. And, uh, and again, make, try to make our planet a little, a little more tolerable. Well, thank you so much. No, thank you. I appreciate, appreciate the time to be here. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.